0: Yeah, podcast! What's shakin' CNFers? On my end, I can announce that a baseball essay of mine will publish in June in Chautauqua's Americana issue. It's the third essay I've had extracted from my as-of-yet-unpublished book, The Sultans of Swing, a memoir of my father in baseball. Speaking of that, I submitted it to Paper Trail Press earlier this month, so it's out there. It's out there, baby. Yo, DJ, cue up the theme. There it is. This episode is brought to you by me, you freeloading CNFers. I bring you episode 16, Charles Bethay, a freelance features writer whose work has appeared in a few places you may have heard of, the now-defunct Grantland, Outside Magazine, and the New Yorker. Yeah, he's playing Major League Ball, folks. And you. Yes, You have a front row seat to this latest installment of hashtag CNF. Be warned. This was a fun one for me at least. Let's hit it. Thanks again for carving out some time here. So, um, so why don't, why don't we start at the beginning for you? Like what is your, what is your freelance origin story?
1: Um, well, let's see. Uh, I'll try not to go too far back, um, but in college, I was a poetry major in college, which was of course of great concern to my parents. Um, (laughs) Although my father did sort of the same thing. He, he majored in English and focused on poetry, but ended up being a lawyer. And, um, I think he assumed, and I assumed because he just kept saying it, that I would go to law school and, and sort of follow him in that path. And we would use our, our appreciation of poetry to, uh, to write very um, uh, lyrical contracts, <laughs> so um, that though once I once I got close to the end of college, that's the the appeal. If there ever had been any, if there ever had been any, sort of started to to uh, to disappear. And um, my mother suggested that, hey, why not apply for an internship at a, at a magazine? Um, You love the outdoors. I I had through hiked the Appalachian Trail from oh, wow. from Georgia to Maine in college. So the outdoors had always been a, a great interest of mine. And she said, "Well, why don't you combine writing in the outdoors somehow?" And I said, "Okay, well, what does that mean?" And um, she's she's one of those mothers that tends to have really good ideas. And uh, she suggested Outside Magazine and. Um, I yeah, I went there. Um, I had to apply twice, but I, I ended up going within about six months of graduating from college. This was back in 2005,
0: mm-hmm.
1: ten, 10 or so years ago. And um, uh, they rejected me the first time. I don't, I, don't, I don't know why, but any number of good reasons, I'm sure, but I, I uh, persisted and applied again. And the second time I had applied, I was um, working a seasonal job in the middle of the woods in New Hampshire. So I only was able to come out once a week and go to the local public library. This is in Franconia, New Hampshire, and, and check my email. And I nearly lost out on in the internship the second time because it took me six days to respond to the acceptance. But I got it, moved out to Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, and ended up living there for about five years, uh, going from intern to researcher to uh, to occasional... Writer. Um, And while I was in, and then then I became an editor uh, at a spin off magazine that they put out for a few years called Outsides Go Magazine. It was uh, like a men's, affluent men's travel lifestyle magazine that was frankly kind of a a cash grab. They really wanted to get some of the advertisers that thought Outside Magazine was too granola. Mm -hmm. Um, So they. They wrote stories. We wrote stories and published stories about golf and yachting and things of that nature, and in hopes that Cartier and Rolex would come on board. Yeah. Um, but uh, I was an editor there and did okay at it, but wasn't passionate about it, and certainly wasn't passionate about sitting inside at a desk, even though my I did have a window that had a view of some beautiful mountains, um, which I was able to get into a fair amount. Um, and I just started. Pitching um, uh, late at night, usually uh, occasionally during work, I guess I should admit um, pitching magazines that I admired. And one was the New Yorker um, and I was naive enough to not really grasp how potentially futile it was to to send off queries to the New Yorker, given that I hadn't published much, even at the outside, even at the magazine at which I worked. Um, But I had read The New Yorker a lot and was very familiar with the, the tone and um, the way the story is read, especially the talk of the town section. And um, after writing and submitting maybe five or six pieces that were received with by the editor graciously and with some um, enthusiasm and, and positivity but not accepted, I finally sent one in back in, I think, two thousand. Seven or eight, uh, there was about a guy who um, lived in Atlanta, where I'm from, he happened to be a friend of a friend, who had procured the email address barackobama at gmail.com before Obama kind of rose to uh, become a a figure of national importance uh, before he even became president, and uh, the story of that email address and of what it meant to have that address and and who was contacting him and what they were saying to him and what that all sort of suggested about Obama was exactly the kind of story that the New Yorker uh, loves yeah. in the Clock of the Town section. And they accepted it and um, didn't even change it a whole lot. And uh, within, I think, three or four months of publishing that, I I bid the, uh, the editor job adieu and um, moved back to Atlanta within... About a year, I'm from Atlanta, and uh, I figured it would be a better place to freelance from. And I thought that that New Yorker story was kind of my golden ticket. Uh, turned out it wasn't exactly a golden ticket. I still had to learn a lot about reporting um, and writing, and still am, in fact, of course. But it gave me the confidence to to go out into the world and, and try to tell stories. And um, I stuck with it, and fortunately I kept my expenses low for the first Few years, still do of course, but uh, early on especially low. I I had a two hundred and fifty dollar a month apartment that I shared with some (laughs) friends and um and uh, yeah, and I just I just kept kept cracking at that nut, and um, I I had the good fortune of there being a city magazine in in Atlanta that um, the editor there had seen the little New Yorker piece. And on the basis, I think, largely of, of that and a few other little things I'd written elsewhere gave me the chance to be a contributing writer at Atlanta Magazine, which was, a much, was and is a much smaller publication but um, still has, has an audience and has some reach and has some resources. And it was kind of the perfect step back um, for me. It allowed me to, to kind of hone my craft in, in, a, in a less – public arena than let's say the New Yorker uh, I mean I wasn't equipped to write feature stories for for anybody really at that point and Atlanta Magazine let me cut my teeth and um within a few years I I was writing long five six thousand word pieces for them about subjects as far ranging as um an assisted suicide advocacy group to uh, sort of a swingers um, apartment complex to uh, you know profiles of um, athletes like Evander Holyfield and uh, it was a really lucky um, a really lucky time for me to, to have that sort of education. I didn't go to journalism school you know I, all I had up to that point was my experience at Outside magazine as basically a fact checker and a researcher and I knew what good writing was, and I and I think I had a good ear and a good sense for how to write sentences, but I didn't um, know how to report, and I really needed some time to to hone that skill.
0: Yeah, Glenn Stout, who is on this podcast and the series editor for Best American Sports Writing, he had a poetry background too, and he's got a, like a very sensitive sort of ear for language, and without the traditional journalistic background either. And so, I wonder do you think having more of just a pure language background uh allowed you to sort of back into reporting better and like made you a better writer? I feel like I feel like reporting can be learned better than than the writing can if that yeah. makes any sense. So, like how do you think that helped you?
1: Well, I I definitely think reporting can be learned and writing I'm dubious that it can be taught. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of like music. I was a terrible trombone player. I don't think any amount of um, of, of like one-on-one teaching would have made me a better musician. You, I think you have an ear or you don't. Yeah. Um, you can either hear good sentences and recognize them and try to replicate them, or you can't. Um, and there's a little bit of wiggle room there, but not a lot. But with re- yeah, reporting it is a learnable skill, but I think it's entirely separate from the the writing skill. Um, I, I don't know that just being a good writer means you can become a good reporter.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think what reporting requires is a lot different than what writing requires. You can, you can be a great writer and not have to really interface with the world a whole lot. Um, you can sit quietly in your room and uh, with all your neuroses contained there, and and not risk going out and having them, um, having them exposed. <laughs> but <laughs> as a reporter, you've got to get out. You've got to talk to people. You have to be comfortable with that. And as I, I'm a bit of an introvert, so the writing thing came more naturally than the reporting thing. Mm. Um, but as occurred with me, with uh, my a brief foray into acting when I was in high school. I found that even though I was an introvert, being an actor, be- being given a role on the stage and being given a role as a journalist, I didn't find myself um, feeling as shy because I had a reason to be talking to people. Um, I-, I-, I wasn't standing there necessarily as myself. I was standing there as as a professional reporter, which gave right. me a little bit of distance and a little bit of... Um, I don't know protection, maybe whatever it was. I found that that role was something that um, wasn't as scary as I thought it would be, and in fact was fascinating and interesting, and was this 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 way into worlds that I would have been otherwise probably too um, uh, shy or introverted to venture into. Um, so that you know that that was a really cool thing to discover about this this job that I I had uh, embraced.
0: Right, and it, like you said, the reporting like kind of it forces forces you to interface with the world. Like, at what point did you realize, like, you know, when you were in that editor's chair, that you wanted to be more on the playing field instead of on the sidelines? So, like, what what well, was the appeal, and like, what did you realize, it, like,
1: I, I think I, I didn't know what was required um, to write the stories that I was reading in Outside and the New Yorker and magazines that I admired, but I. I just knew that the act of creating those stories, putting those words on a page, was something I wanted to try to do. Mm -hmm. It seemed a lot more interesting than shuffling the words around and messing with the the grammar. I'm exaggerating. An editor's job is much more complex than that, but um, it's really shaping stories in very important ways. But I wanted to be part of the the earlier process, the beginning process. Um, I wanted to the dirtier, the messier, the the more, um, uh, yeah, just the, the, the process that leads up to the clean crisp thing that you hold in your hand. I thought that I'm an I am an adventurer. I, I I'm saying some things about myself that may be seemingly contradictory. I'm shy. I, I've always been a bit shy, but I've always been adventurous as well. And I mm-hmm. think hiking the Appalachian trail speaks to both of those things. Um, is it sort of a loner journey, but I, I had like there was a sense of adventure within me that wanted to to be tested, and it wasn't so much in the editor's chair, if that makes sense.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, what do you think it was? Um, like, it sounds like you are really grounded in the process and in the work, and that's where you like find a lot of the a lot of love and sort of yeah what drives you like to these stories is the actual uh, the repertorial process, the the, the nitty gritty.
1: It is. I think I get really excited about the reporting. I get really anxious about it. I when when I'm out there, I'm like, I usually sleep a lot. But I when I'm out reporting, I, I can't sleep very well. I'm just super excited and amped up, and um, and you know the, I'm driven by the I guess the insecurity too of can I can I gather all the facts necessary to put them on the page? And I don't think I really relax until I'm until I've got that. Recorder, digital recorder, full of many hours worth of interviews, and I can, in the peace and and comfort of my home, of my desk, sit down and actually listen and piece it together. I think that part of it is is still more natural, the kind of the the solitary uh, uh, at home part. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I you know you can't do one without the other, and and I think I love both both parts. Um, the reporting though is definitely the. anxiety producing part and I think that's that's important though if you if you lost the anxiety you're not gonna you're not gonna really chase the story to the extent that it deserves
0: yeah that's really that's real interesting that it's that sort of fear threshold like if you're not feeling a little bit scared by it it's probably you're probably not gonna like sort Uh, of uh, harvest the right sort of energy out of the story if it's not like pushing you to a limit that you're afraid of
1: absolutely yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the true. I mean, I, I think it's true of life. I, if if humans didn't have anxiety and didn't have fear, um, you know, we would we'd fall in all sorts of fall into all sorts of problems. We would be preyed all sorts of predators if predators still existed. You know, <laughs> um, anxiety is an evolutionarily adapted trait.
0: Right, and um, I, I wonder where, you know, kind of like just like backing up to some things you said earlier. Uh, I wonder where that sort of confidence and even like audacity that you had early on to like early on before you even knew sort of the the repertorial heft that you would have to invest in a lot of these stories to um to pursue like the gold sand the pursuit the new yorker which is like the yankees of magazines so it's i wonder like where that came from internally where you were like all right that's where i'm going right off the bat
1: a combination of of audacity and naivete probably and And, having like gone to uh, fancy uh, well not, the high school wasn 't fancy, but I went to a private school and then went to a fancy university and to be surrounded by the expectation of um, you know you are you are the you were the best and even though i didn 't really believe I was the best mm-hmm. I, and in fact was quite uncertain of that i I thought well nonetheless I have to pursue the things that the best pursue and and then it was it was just really feeling like um What's there to lose? I mean, law is like a law profession is is always potentially going to be there for me. If this doesn't work out, why not try something both really fun and and really challenging and interesting and and uh, and and you know the ego. I think most writers would be lying if they said that ego didn't play into it to some degree too. I wanted to see my name in the biggest marquee. Yeah, I wanted to. I wanted to see my name in lights and in my stories to have a wide audience. And, you know, it's taken me a while. Um, The story that I told at the beginning of this podcast, that was back in 2005, 2006. And only really within the last year or two am I feeling like my work is is at that level where it's getting noticed.
0: Yeah, and I I would say, like, from the outside looking in, people might might think that they look at sort of your your catalog of publications where you've had work published that it and you're you're a pretty young guy i would say what like 33 34 uh-huh so like that scene from the outside without knowing the backstory that you just kind of like flashed onto the scene like um but dude I mean, but you yeah, put in cool. 10 years of work
1: yeah i put in a lot of work and and i've had good breaks and i've and i've yeah. Uh, learned how to work hard and in the right way, and yeah. Um, but I still, you know, I, I I am purely a freelance writer. I don't have another job, job. But I still occasionally uh, do other things for money. I mean, I I Airbnb my house once in a while. I chop wood and sell it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I I've made it in the in the sense that my writing is appearing where I, I'd hoped it would appear. But it's still uh, it's still a struggle to make ends meet. But that's a separate conversation about. How writing just isn't rewarded <laughs> very well,
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah, exactly, which it kind of gets you to the point where and you're already alluding to it is that you really have to genuinely love the work and then turning that work into something that's factually artful
1: yeah and and it's it's been really fun lately i I spent a few months a few months ago, I spent a week in in uh, in Aspen reporting a story for outside uh, that I was telling you about, and. Yeah. It involved, uh, it involves interviewing some really interesting people, and it involved smoking pot, and it involved hiking, and doing all the things that I just really <laughs> I enjoy doing, and um, and then and then putting it and then creating a narrative that that's compelling and relevant um, to the moment that we're in right now. Uh, I, I can't ask for much more than that.
0: Yeah, isn't it kind of cool? Like sometimes, even though maybe the financial reward isn't always there. Um, but like when you sit back from it, from a remove of a couple months or even a couple of years and you look back on it, be like, wow, that was, that was really cool. Like I was in Colorado, I was smoking pot, I was doing, I was meeting cool people. Like from yeah. a remove, it's like, wow, that was, that was pretty awesome.
1: Yeah. My friends, um, a lot of my friends who, many of whom have really interesting jobs themselves, um, think that I've like. I've decoded life somehow, and I've like figured out the key. Because I'm always, and I don't. Re- I try not to even brag about this stuff, or even talk about it that much with them, frankly, because it's really hard to not come across as sort of like a little bratty, you know. Like I'm off to Aspen, and I'm off to so, and I'm off to New Zealand, and yeah, you know, they don't. It's hard to then convey uh, all the all the work that's involved behind the glamour of the trip, or the seeming glamour of the trip. Um, but my friends do help, help remind me that, that it is pretty special what I've been able to, to do and, um, and I'm appreciative, but it's one of those things. It's like, uh, you, you do it for long, you do anything for long enough and you just become sort of numb, um, to, to whatever it is, good or bad. And, and, uh, it's nice to be reminded because I, I do feel a little blessed
0: yeah that's great um so what draws you to a particular story or like what must be in place for you to give a story like all of your energies
1: um, I look for really interesting people um I look for uh it, you know people who are unusually um, open and vulnerable and um, have done a fair amount of of introspection and are thus able to, to open up about whatever, whatever it is that whatever world they're in that I've stumbled upon. So whether it's the world of uh, high end cannabis entrepreneurship or, um, or in the case of a story I did about, a uh, this, the 25 year old CEO of lonely planet guidebooks, mm-hmm. whether it's the, you know, the, the intricacies of the travel market, um, or, uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's plenty of examples, but I, I look for people who, who are open, um, and will, will sit down with me. And, and, uh, so I guess I'm not chasing, I, th- there's some exceptions to this, but I don't often chase stories about people who don't want to talk. Yes. Uh, I mean, a lot of, and I admire the hell out of journalists who do. Um, and and, there, and I have done some stories where I've had I've gotten some interviews that have been um, pretty big coups because they were difficult to get. But once you got them, you know the person the person that you got or, or I got in this case was a uh, a convict who this is the story I wrote for Atlanta magazine called "The Many Lives of Aubrey Lee Price" and it's about a former preacher uh, turned um, bank investor turned um uh, man who faked his own death and disappeared for a year and a half and when he reappeared everyone wanted that story because he had he had uh, built his investors in this bank deal uh to the tune of about 30 million dollars and everyone you know wanted to know where the hell he'd been and what he'd done with the money and and it was a huge it was a huge story waiting there and this guy Happened to be in a jail in Georgia, and I wrote him a letter, and he responded to it, and uh, and, and so that you know that's an example of going after somebody who does want to talk, but you have to prove you're the right person to talk to. Mm-hmm. And, um, that's that's a skill that um, I think my my younger and perhaps <laughs> a tad bit shy has. Has benefited me there um i think a lot of journalists can come across
0: oh charles i think you're dropping out a little bit can you still hear me yeah i can hear you oh there you go you're, okay. you're, you're back
1: what's the last word you heard
0: oh uh, it was um i think you were just talking about um you know writing uh, writing to this guy and you said a lot of journalists Oh, yeah, well, said, a lot of
1: journalists I think can come across as sort of brash, okay, they're abrasive yep. and um, sort of transparently uh, going after a, a big story for their own benefit. and um, I, i've I think i've I've been able to sincerely convey to and this is a skill I think I've developed, the ability to sincerely convey to uh, a subject that a lot of people may want to talk to. Um, that I'm somebody who will listen, somebody who's, uh, interested in, in giving the story due respect and time and effort. And that, um, I'm not some grizzled, grizzled old guy who's just going to churn something out, but that like, I'm going to take the care with the story that, that, a, that particularly a young journalist would somebody who's trying to make, um, make his name telling good, important stories, uh, so, in the case of Aubrey Lee Price, um, I think my being young helped a lot. So, I, I guess that's to say that if you have listeners out there who are younger journalists, don't don't fear um, your youth can be used to advantage.
0: Yeah, I think it's important, and you just hit on it that it's if you're going to tell longer stories, you have to like almost go into it with a. Uh, kind of like a partnership in a way it's like you want to make sure that person doesn't feel like they're just being used right like, you know it's like you almost have to ha- kind of have to dance with them a little bit and i i probably some hardcore grizzled reporters will be like oh no you can't you gotta you gotta be objective and keep them at arm's length but at the same time you almost have to like treat it almost like a friendship otherwise they're just going to give you cold canned answers and then you don't reach anything deeper
1: right right yeah it, that's that's crucial uh, to to go into it as a human being um, as opposed to a uh, a transactional sort of relationship. Right. But you got to make sure that you don't you don't um, trade f- sort of the the appearance of friendship for inside intimate information. I mean if you're going be f- if you're going to be friendly, you need to also be clear about with your subject about what you're doing and not give off the wrong impression so that they'll end up feeling used.
0: Yeah, so like the you can be friendly, but the notebook's got to be out and the recorder's got to be out, these these signifiers that you're on the clock.
1: Exactly. You need to be transparent about your intentions. But you can still, I think, inject that with some real humanity and some vulnerability of your own. Um, Before I convinced Aubrey Lee Price to let me tell his story, um, I told him some some things about myself, some of them fairly private things about, about my life and my upbringing that I felt would um help show him my humanity and 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 the fact that I was willing to be open with him if he'd be open with me.
0: Right. Yeah, if it comes from a place of authenticity, then you can really have a dialogue and and reach that level of depth that's going to separate your story of him from the dozens of others I'm sure that were written.
1: Right. Correct.
0: So like my um you know, my friend Maggie Messett, She's a you know reporter, PhD candidate, and um, author of *The Rainy Season*. Um, she likens narrative nonfiction a lot to putting documentaries on paper, which I kind of like. And um, you know, you were a producer of uh, *Fair Chase*, like that r- really cool documentary that I just told you that I watched this morning. Yeah. And um, you know, that stemmed, I take it, from the 2011 article you wrote, also *Fair Chase* for *Outside*. Yeah, is that where that stemmed from? Yeah. So, um, well, why don't you um, describe what the story and the, and the documentary are about uh, because people should check it out for sure. Yeah. It's a
1: really it's a really good watch. Appreciate that. Um, it's uh, it, well, it, it came out of living uh, s- living in New Mexico and knowing a handful of of professional marathon runners. Uh, one of whom had read a book called Born to Run that many of you may be familiar with. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's now I think being made into a film. But in this book by Christopher McDougall, which seeks to better understand the origins of running and why humans run, Um, there's a chapter that introduces a theory that was first put forward by a Harvard professor named Daniel Lieberman, and the theory is called persistence hunting, and it says that uh, before humans had weapons like uh, bow and arrow and knives and such to kill uh, prey for food... We actually ran down the animals um, because the, the archeological record shows that uh, these tools that we now use and take for granted for, for going after animals didn't exist until relatively late in Homo sapiens evolution. So the question was, how did we get food before that? Uh, and the answer, according to Lieberman and others was running. Um, so uh, A few of the the runners that I knew, and again, these were very accomplished runners um, that that numbered ultimately 8 to 10 uh, in New Mexico, decided they would test the theory, not in exactly a scientific way, but in an an adventurous way that would lead itself to um, some good storytelling, both by me and, and by them for the rest of their lives, probably. And they decided to try to run down a pronghorn antelope, which is the second fastest land animal. Behind the cheetah, uh, I can run almost 60 miles an hour, and it, it happens to live in eastern New Mexico, um, not far from where we live. So these guys went out uh, with a little more than running shoes and uh, a sense of adventure, and um, frankly, not enough hunting skills. But that's that's sort of something that I won't talk too much about because I don't want to spoil the story. Yeah, but they they tried to chase down a pronghorn, and they did this twice once for uh, story I wrote for Outside, and then again um, a, a year and a half or two years later for a documentary film that ended up being called Fair Chase, and uh, it was b- both to write about and, and to film extremely challenging um, because you're writing and filming about very fast humans chasing much faster animals, and there's there's not not really a way to to be there, be- you know, right behind any of the action as it happens at all. It all had to come, at least in the written version of the story, had to come from retelling and and uh, and mapping out. And uh, but it was a cool adventure story that I think got to a very got into a very important question about about us. I mean, I don't know if you run, but but getting into this story, I, I started feeling um, uh, this this deep sort of primal. Connection to to using my body that I hadn't before, and I think it just came from the realization that we have bodies for a reason. Yeah, Um, Yeah. we're certainly not meant to sit down all day. Yeah,
0: what I I was particularly drawn to it 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 was like this this camaraderie and this brotherhood among these um, among these runners, but this cool. Connection to to nature, it does make you just want to lace up the shoes and just head out there and just go until you can't go anymore. It's like it, it kind of like connects to some primal
1: need to get out there and move. Yes, absolutely, and and I can connect that to my my daily routine as a writer. If you want to get into that, um, I I can't sit still. I don't have ADD. I'm pretty good at focusing, but I just something feels wrong with sitting in place especially on a beautiful day so I really work in in bursts of 30 to 90 minutes and then I take I take frequent breaks and I, I begin the day as well with a few hours of exercise mm-hmm. uh, this morning I was up at six working out with a buddy a photographer who's going with me to the Canadian Rockies next month for a Wall Street Journal travel story I do a few of those a year um, which is which is fun and satisfies the desire to travel. Um, but we're training to do a, a ski touring, hut to hut ski touring trip. But after that, I I come home and I spend a good bit of time eating. I I'm mm-hmm. a guy with a high metabolism and I I make bacon and biscuits as many mornings as I have time to <laughs> and uh and and cereal and grapefruit juice and all kinds of stuff. And in fact, when I was thinking about what we were going to talk about and quotes that I liked. I, I was recalling a Hunter Thompson quote about breakfast. I don't know if you're familiar with the film Breakfast with Hunter. I'm,
0: you know, I'm not. I'm going to have to check that out.
1: It's good. And, and uh, uh, will you uh, indulge me if I read this quote? Please, please. Go, go right yeah. ahead. All right. Um, it's pretty funny. So here it is. Bre- and You know, you can imagine. I'm not going to do the Hunter Thompson voice, but <laughs> you can imagine it. Breakfast is the only meal of the day that I tend to view with the same kind of traditionalized reverence that most people associate with lunch and dinner. I like to eat breakfast alone and almost never before noon. Anybody with a terminally jangled lifestyle needs at least one psychic anchor every 24 hours, and mine is breakfast. In Hong Kong, Dallas, or at home, and regardless of whether or not I've been to bed, breakfast is a personal ritual that can be properly observed only alone And in the spirit of genuine excess, the food factor should always be massive. Four Bloody Marys, two grapefruits, a pot of coffee, Rangoon crepes, a half pound of either sausage, bacon, or corned beef hash with diced chilies, a Spanish omelet or eggs benedict, a quart of milk, a chopped lemon for random seasoning, and something like a slice of key lime pie, two margaritas, and six lines of the best cocaine for dessert right and there should be two or three newspapers all mail and messages a telephone a notebook for planning the next 24 hours and at least one source of good music all of which should be dealt with outside in the warmth of a hot sun and preferably stone naked <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing anyway, that's a little that's a little inspiration for me every morning when i'm when i'm uh, chopping up my my fruit for my cereal <laughs>
0: That's incredible. Yeah. So like when, um, so what does that, that first hour of your day typically look like when, like, when do you typically wake up and, you know, and start getting, hitting, hitting up your favorite meal of the day and then getting to work?
1: Uh, I mean, I, as I said, lately I've been getting up around six o'clock to exercise for a few hours. Um, but it really, it, it really, it can swing anywhere from six to eight. Um, but after getting up, I, I spent some time with, with the food factor as Hunter would call it. And I, Put on a little music um, often i like I like turning on some Dylan or some Kendrick Lamar, somebody that's that's really good with words that kind of gets my mind thinking um, about about sentences and and uh, and metaphors and things of that nature and um, and then I'll sit down at the desk and scan a little bit of news, not too much to be too depressed mm-hmm. and uh, and then. And then it's just sort of improvisational from there. Honestly, I, 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 I'm a very disciplined person in terms of how much time I spend working or trying to work, but I don't try to pretend that I can fathom how a day is going to unfold. Um, and it's going to depend on who decides to email me or email me back. It's going to depend on what sort of inspiration I may have, um, idea wise. I, I just feel like inspiration's. T- and and happenstance are too big a part of how my days unfold to to try to sort of set them up systematically.
0: At any given point, uh, how many stories do you have in the hopper? Or do you just work on one at a time?
1: Um, Well, in the last six months, I've started contributing uh, a sports piece every two to three weeks to the New Yorker's online sports blog called The Sporting Scene. So those have been great, by the way. Thank you very much. I'm always trying to kick around one or two of those, kind of get getting some of those moving. Um, so there's always at least one of those sort of in, in my mind, and then and then a feature probably uh, if I've if I'm so lucky has been assigned that I can that I can be kind of working through any of the various stages of planning, reporting, researching, and and writing. Um, so I you know not too many stories maybe one or two at a time I I'm a decent multitasker but I I do also tend to get overwhelmed quite easily Mm -hmm. um, even still with writing so I like to limit the number of things I'm doing at once to maybe two or three if possible
0: and uh, speaking of books like what book or books have you given to friends or anyone else the most
1: If any, I was was thinking about that Um, books that I love and have given at least once would include all the king's men by Robert Penn Warren, um, which is the the sort of quasi retelling of the Huey long story. The politician from Louisiana, Um, the sort of populist who, frankly, a lot of comparisons have been made lately between him and Donald Trump. Mm. Um, in terms of the way that he tried to appeal to people, uh, and I, if there's time, I have a quote from that book which I'll read. Um, but I'll, I've also given East of Eden by mm-hmm. Steinbeck. That's one of my very favorite long novels. Um, I like Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard a lot. Uh, Gatsby by Fitzgerald is one of the few books that I've myself have reread um a few times
0: i read that i reread that book every year just, Yeah, just it, incredible it, yeah
1: absolutely. And, and that actually there's a connection between that and the next one uh, i was going to say the the proud highway by hunter thompson which is a collection of his letters um that he wrote mostly when he was a younger a young man and an aspiring writer and in that book he talks about when he was young and unknown and poor and scraping away at, at his craft. He spent, uh, time in a cabin, um, in the woods, uh, with a typewriter, just rewriting word for word, uh, Gatsby. And I forget which of Hemingway's works, but he literally was just typing out these novels so that he could get some of their DNA, mm. uh, in, in him and, and, Sort of internalize some of the rhythms of the way that those that the great writers wrote, which I thought was an incredible. I haven't done it, but I thought it was an incredible idea. Um, and also, it kind of explodes the notion that Hunter Thompson just ate drugs and great writing, to put it well, great or not so great, depending on your view of him, just sort of poured out of him. Yep. Uh, it was very much he was very much a man who who made himself. A writer through hard work and that's that's the only way to do it
0: i've rewritten one opening i i like trying to get the sort of the rhythm of these like beautiful sentences uh i've done it once for um truman capote's in cold blood that opening passage that describes nice. holcomb uh-huh. and it is like a weird feeling of writing just copying that stuff word for word it mm-hmm. like it fe- it's amazing. Like you almost feel like you have a you're taking a, a pill for a superpower. It's weird. It's <laughs> it's really cool. I really recommend it because yep. if anything, just like like Thompson was doing, it just it kind of just gets you into a and this might appeal to even those days when you were when you were acting and and stuff. Like it puts you into a different role. Like it puts you into another stratosphere, and you're connecting on a different level that you otherwise never would. It like. You're almost
1: like Absolutely. imitating. You're not just right.
0: reading and taking it
1: impassively. You're actually like partaking right. in them, right? It's like um, it's like singing. A, it's like having like a great Dylan record blasting really loudly, and you're kind of singing back up a little bit to it. <laughs> yeah. But then you know, then the the illusion is pierced when you when you <laughs> when you hit stop or you turn the music off, and you hear your your own voice, and you're like, "Wow, uh, I'm not I'm not quite Dylan yet." <laughs> but it is useful, I think, to get those the rhythms of great artists in your head. Um, uh, and, you know, I mean, it, it, I, don't, I don't think there's any, there should be concern about, especially with young writers, about that somehow um, uh, interfering with the development of their own voice. I think your own voice is going to be your own voice, no matter who you read and who you write and <laughs> whose passages you, you replicate. Um, if you spend enough time writing enough of your own stuff, your own voice is going to emerge you can't, you can't be Hunter Thompson anyway. You can't be Truman Capote.
0: Exactly. But by like imitating them, you start to, your own voice will sort of bubble up out of all your influences. And I I think, you know, you can kind of read that elsewhere. A lot of people say that, but it's really true. Like you have to just go out there and sort of pretend, play, be, you know, play, pretend, play a role. But in, in that acting, you know your own style is gonna bubble through and you know and if you have some talent then you know and talent and endurance you will sort of persevere and start to rise above but sometimes it takes longer than others but i think it's a it's a great exercise in in finding who you are on the page
1: absolutely uh i'll mention two or two or three books i'm also i also have my my eyes in, my eyes on or in right now that i'm enjoying cool um and then uh Probably have like five more minutes or so before I gotta run sure sure um but one is they're very two of them are very different books one is um it's a a biography of the Mormon uh founder prophet Joseph Smith by fawn Brody and this was written years ago, maybe four or five decades ago um, but it's an incredible riveting account of the founding of a religion um, which it, it's told. It's told a bit academically, but it's just incredibly researched. Um, just mind-boggling what this woman was able to do, given that that her sources were were very very difficult to um, to engage, uh, being that she was an outsider of the Mormon Church. And then the other book is a book called *Snowblind* by a writer I hadn't heard of before named Robert Sabag or Sabag mm-hmm. S-A-B-B-A-G. Um, and, and it's, he was, he was a long time newspaper writer who I guess stumbled upon a, um, an incre- and this is kind of what I would ultimately love to do is, is just stumble upon a guy like this, a guy who, uh, rose to becoming a, um, a cocaine kingpin in the heyday of, of, of that drug. And, it, the story itself is just is unbelievable and fascinating, but this guy writes it's sort of gonzo ish, but it's it's also I would say it's sort of if Hunter Thompson had like an editor from the New yorker magazine it's 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 polished, it's precise, but it's also zany and huh. wild and um it's, inc- it's an incredible feat. I mean he writes stylistically it 's written the way that you'd want a book about drugs to be written. Um, for an intellectual audience it's it's really it's really s- it's something i 'm only a third of the way through but i 'm loving that book and then the other one that i 'm always sort of picking up and putting down is joseph mitchell's up in the old hotel mm-hmm. he's one of those classic old New Yorker writers who's been deceased for quite a while um,
0: yeah jo- joe Gould's secret out of that book is like one thing i couldn't put it down when I first read it
1: Absolutely. Love that. And one of the takeaways from him that I can articulate is is that uh let your let your subject speak. Um I love his long, like the long quotes that he allows. I mean they'll be pages long sometimes. He's able to he's clearly gotten to know his subjects well enough um that they've been sort of disarmed and they just speak to them in ways that are more interesting and expose things about themselves better than, than he or you or I could do in our own words. Yeah. And I think it's really important to let people talk in stories. I know there are writers who disagree with that. Some great writers, you know, you'll read stories in Esquire magazine by uh, Chris Jones and Tom Janot and those guys. And um, I don't claim to have read all their work, but I, I'm pretty sure that they tend to try to avoid lots of quoting, and, and and you know they're really great narrative storytellers, so they're able to to get away with that. But I don't think there's anything wrong, there's anything less artistic um, or real about letting a subject talk. It, it, now, the art is in discovering what what to include. Yeah. Um, and and I don't have any quick magical thoughts on that you just have to spend a lot of time with the material and, and the subject and you'll it should be hopefully self-evident to you what's what's the most important but i love hearing people talk in their own words and joseph mitchell does that well
0: fantastic and uh, before before i let you go because i know you gotta run um... where can people find you on the internet
1: thanks for asking um... twitter is just my name at charles buffet that's spelled b-e-t-h-e-a uh... Instagram, also Charles Bethay. I occasionally do some, put some photos up from the interesting places that I'm able to travel while writing. And um, and then I have a website, which is, you guessed it, CharlesBethay.com. <laughs> and uh, I think those are the most important places. Um, you can also go to the websites of the magazines I'm contributing to, The New Yorker and uh, Outside Magazine, and they'll have some of my collected stuff there, um, and hopefully it'll keep accumulating, and I'll get rich. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> fantastic. Well, it's, it seems like you're very much well on the way to that. Uh, So uh, <laughs> keep up, keep up the great work, man. Like whether just whatever form of storytelling you adopt, documentaries or the documentaries on paper, just keep doing what you're doing. It's it's uh, it's a lot of fun to read and. Um, you just, just keep on, keep on doing what you do.
1: Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. you as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope your po- I hope this podcast grows. I think you're, this has been a fun conversation to have, and it's, it's beneficial for readers and writers to have these more. So, good luck.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks very much. It means a lot, and uh, continued success. And uh, we'll be in touch.
1: Thanks, Brendan. See ya. Take care. Bye bye.
0: That does it for yet another episode of hashtag CNF. Thank you very much for listening. One last call to action. Give the episode a subscribe, or even better yet, a great endorsement is to share it with a friend. Also, head over to brendanomera.com. Subscribe to the email newsletter. It only comes out if I publish something, and if I publish something, it comes out Tuesday mornings. That is it. Uh, Beyond that, uh, on Twitter, @brendanomera. Email brendan at brendanomera.com. Love to hear from you. Office hours are always open. So uh, that's about it. Thanks again, and stay tuned for another episode of Hashtag CNF coming soon. Thanks. Bye.